Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, listeners. Uh, this is Daniel here with the inaugural episode of a new Cannonball side project series, Space is the Place. This is, uh, you know, you'll still be getting your regular Cannonballs. This is not a replacement or anything. This is, no, this is a, this is additional content. This is bonus. Um, well, not bonus. That makes it sound like this is somehow, I don't know, not, not a serious endeavor. In any case, <laughs> before I dig too deep of a hole for myself, I am thrilled to introduce you to my intrepid interlocutor, my co-host on this journey, Mr. Gigi Launchbow. Gigi, how are you tonight? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just uh, keeping busy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, all right, man. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and um, I guess just explain to everybody and also explain to Gigi why I've wrapped him into this. Um, so the idea was one that, uh, so both Claude and I have been talking about sort of expanding the cannonball concept and Claude has taken the lead on a side project where he will be examining kind of the contemporary canon that is recent literary fiction that has come to be accepted as this is the, the good stuff nowadays. And I sort of thought to myself, well, I'm not very smart. I'm not a, a culture maven exactly, but there's one thing I do have an abiding interest in. It is the genre of science fiction and especially the kind of the way that it has developed over the, let's call it two centuries uh, of its existence. It's a, not only is it something I just have a, you know, a, a personal interest in because it's what I enjoy reading. I think it's also a kind of, it's a fascinating story to look at kind of popular culture and how it interacts with the world around it. Um, so I got my pal Gigi on the horn. He is a fella who I have known, uh, via the internet for a number of years. We've podcasted before, in fact, on a, a minute by minute, a talking cat podcast, as I recall. Yes. Um, yes. Um, but I knew he would be the guy to talk to because he, I, I think he shares some similar elements of, of, uh, of interest and fascination, uh, with me. So actually, I kind of want to, before we get started in today's topic, the book we're talking about today, I did want to give us all a chance to, you know, the listeners to get to know us from the standpoint we're coming from, and also um, just for Gigi and I to sort of understand what we're, you know, where we're coming from with all this. So Gigi, what is your, 
what's kind of your broad history with the genre of science fiction? What, uh, when did you first get into it and what drew you to it? Well, I've liked science fiction for a long time. Uh, as far as Jules Verne goes, gosh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I probably read it first. You know, some paperbacks I found in the basement from my dad when I was middle <laughs> school age or something like that. Uh, I've read a fair number of his before. Uh, science fiction-wise, uh, I like right now. I'm reading a lot of Charles Strauss. Uh, I, oh, yeah. You know, just uh, I don't know. I kind of tend more towards the uh, fantasy-ish science fiction, a little more to weird science mm-hmm. fiction uh, instead of the more hard science fiction. I was never really an Asimov yeah. guy. I, I read more Clark. Uh, I've read, you know, a little bit of. Um, so forth. But yeah, I, I like the weird stuff a little more than the hard science <laughs> fiction. But uh, the like with the Jules Verne, it really falls into the adventure stuff. And I, I've read a lot of that, too. Uh, you know, when I was a little <laughs> – it's one of those things when you're – when you're a little kid and you you get hooked on the series of books that are, you know, not really a kid's book. So, like, I read all the Clive Kessler books when I was, you know, like sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. So for me, that was uh, for me, that was Michael Crichton. I, yeah. I read his entire oeuvre. <laughs> oh, same. Same here. I, yeah. Yeah. And Tom Clancy. <laughs> Oh, of course. Absolutely. Red Storm Rising. It's a classic. <laughs> are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. So, so, and sorry, listeners sorry. at home, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing some connection problems. Do not blame Gigi for this. I, uh, uh, my, my uh, internet is not uh, at its best, so you, you might, you might hear us asking each other if we're there for uh, a little bit here. But please, but yeah, bear with us. Anyway, Gigi, um, yeah, continue. I, I'm sorry, I, oh, I, oh. I can't hear what you're saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just uh, I was explaining to our listeners about the technical difficulties. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, you might no. have to cut and then some of the the what's and the huhs out. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. As I said before, we started recording. I'm becoming much more confident in my editing abilities. Um, but yeah, I, I was just explaining and then inviting you to uh, to continue. Or oh, uh, yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. I don't really have a a ton to say. Uh, you know, like I said, I I, I do enjoy science fiction. A lot. Uh, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, somebody who can check off all the great works. I, uh, you know, <laughs> right. uh, you know, hit, just hit and miss like anybody, I suppose. You know, I've sure. I've read my share of, you know, Star Trek novelizations and other, you know, not exactly great. <laughs> 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 and uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I suppose you just say a sort of a good, you know. Cross the board's sampling of science fiction would be yeah. know, what I've been into. Cool. Um, I, I'm actually – I'm much much the same way. I vastly tend toward the, um, the, the more soft end of the spectrum. Um, I very much more enjoy the kind of uh, – the more sociological aspects of the genre. You know, like I, I, I want to, I you know – I don't necessarily need to know all the physics that go behind like an amazing device. I want to know how it really screws up everyone's society. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I think I'm coming at a similar, uh, similar way there. Um, And yeah, I similarly, it was my, my dad's paperbacks that got me into it all. He, as a, uh, as a lad in a small farming town in Illinois, uh, 
snapped up every single paperback in the drugstore he could find that was about something far, far away and <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and ultra. Um, so he had this massive uh, bookshelf of uh, mid-century, like 60s and 70s um, science fiction paperbacks that I availed myself of. Um, and probably much like with your Clive Cussler and Mike Crichton, like I probably ended up reading things that maybe I shouldn't have been reading when I was 10 or 11, but – uh, you know, I was sort of given free reign mm-hmm. and I fell away from, uh, I, I kind of fell and, and much like yourself, I've, I've, well, I, I really don't want to admit to how many, uh, 90s star Wars novels I read. Um, <laughs> but, but I kind of fell away from the genre as I got into college. I allowed myself to think of it as somehow beneath me or that I needed to like spread my wings a little bit. And so I did, and I read a lot more other stuff, but um, I, I really, I really came back to it in a big way, and I think with a lot, I think with a better sort of critical eye uh, for the for the genre itself and writing and whatnot. Um, so it, it is now absolutely the kind of fiction that I read the most, um, but it's not quite with this. I don't have quite the same patience for, shall we say, the uh, the genre's pitfalls that I used to. Mm, yeah. Um, so one thing that's going to be, I think, interesting for me on this project is sort of seeing how not only all the great in the genre developed, but also where the annoying bullshit <laughs> sort of developed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but f- as for Jules Verne specifically, I I've ne- I had never read a Verne uh, straight up. Um, I only knew his work just through cultural osmosis and, you know, seeing – you know, wa- watching uh, Mysterious Island on TNT right. or something like I-, I only knew it through interpretation. And part of that was because uh, I kind of I-, I went along with the fact that his reputation in the English speaking world is that he's like a kid's writer or that he's somehow like a sort of le- not very literary or something. And I was I was interested to learn in doing research for the show that that is largely the fault of all of his translators. When Verne was first writing in the 19th century, the English language translators, being derisive of French as a language and people, um, really didn't do it any justice. So the the English language translations that came out were all abridged or dumbed down mm-hmm. and, not, and poorly edited. And so that, you know, for most of the, you know, for most of the time, everyone in the English speaking world was like, oh, yeah, he writes, you know, loopy adventure stories for babies. Um but I, I was surprised to learn that was not the case, that his reputation in France is much, much more sort of honored and literary. So we actually went out of our way. The The book that we're reading today is From Earth to the Moon. Um, and I, I, I selected that one simply because, for one, I had never seen any adaptation of it beyond that famous clip of uh, that early silent movie, La Voyage dans la Lune by Georges Méliès, where the the mm-hmm. moon gets hit with a big projectile and weeps. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a loose adaptation. <laughs> that's, a very, that's a very loose adaptation I, I came to learn. Um, but it was one that I – so it's one that I could come in fresh on basically. And it was it was Verne's first big hit too. This was published in 1865, um, which is interesting for a number of reasons because it's set in the United States – and is directly tied to the end of the Civil War. Uh, so he was basically writing about the not-too-distant future when he when he wrote this one. But Verne himself was born in uh, – just to give you just a little you know, ch- chicken scratch background. He was born in 1828 in the uh, port city of Nantes <clears throat> in uh, Brittany, 
uh, sort of in the eastern part of France, in the mouth of the Loire River. And the uh, he, he apparently his father was an interesting character. He was very kind of severe, uh, very pious. Uh, and he uh, so growing up in for the Verne household, his father had a nautical telescope that he kept pointed at the mechanical clock tower of a nearby abbey, like a monastery. And I just had to think that is just, of course, Jules Verne grew up in a house <laughs> which had a nautical telescope pointed at a mechanical clock mm. in a religious house. Um, but he ended up, uh, he lived to a pretty good age. He lived to 77. He died in 1902. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting. And I think pertinent that his life basically spanned this, mushrooming of industrialization and rapid technological acceleration. He was kind of the generation that experienced that firsthand. Um, so with all that in mind, I, uh, Gigi, and, uh, unless you had something, uh, anything more to add before we jump into what the heck happens in From Earth to the Moon? No, no that's fine. I, uh, <clears throat> as far as this book goes, uh, I have read it before, but it was – you know, probably sixth grade, something like that. And so I, you know, except for the fact that, you know, you know, the base, just the basic, you know, sketch of the plot, I did not really remember it at all. So it was almost like reading it new, you know, uh, a few times it was like, oh yeah, that's happened. That's right. And, but then there were also (laughs) several times where in my mind I was remembering something else happening. So yeah, but it awesome. was practically uh, a first read. It had been so long. Yeah, and and I think also the we you would have been reading a new translation because we went with a, a translation from the nineteen nineties right. from a Verne scholar named Walter James Miller who had a personal chip on his shoulder about how every single English language <laughs> translation was terrible. So anyone, any of the Dover Thrift editions or those uh, the fifty cent ones with lurid covers that you would find at Walmart. Uh, those are all garbage. Don't read them. Uh, read Walter James Miller. He had this wonderful uh, annotated edition that, uh, with these wonderful uh, footnotes uh, all through the the all through the the uh, the text, which were really quite informative. Yeah, it's um, a great it's a great book. Uh, yeah, lots of good illustrations from the the French copies, and yeah, just pretty much yeah, yeah. as much annotation as story almost. <laughs> Right. As, and uh, a lot more Freudian analysis than I expected. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess we'll, we'll we'll discover why maybe that uh, was uh, was appropriate. So, from Earth to the Moon, published in 1865, opens up, explain sort of describing the members of the Baltimore Gun Club, and uh, this is just after the war, the Civil War has ended, uh, and they're sitting around bemoaning the end of the war because they were all. Artillery engineers. That, that was the gun club was a kind of society that they had developed during the war years to further the science of blasting human beings apart with uh, with horrible industrial efficiency, as was the uh, the game at the time. And I this was kind of my first big surprise here. I really did not expect Verne to be such an arch and satirical writer. Um, and right off the bat. He basically like in the and it it will keep going in it may be a little more ambivalent but like I was not expecting from Earth to the Moon to be a parody of American bellicosity <laughs> but but it it jumps right off with it yeah absolutely the same thing really jumped out at me that when I was a you know a little kid reading it I did not notice and like you said 
I was reading some terrible, you know, yellowed old pulp <laughs> right. version. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is very sarcastic and biting. <laughs> you know, yeah, and I'd, I'd love to to read a passage just so y'all can get a uh, out there in Radio Land can get a flavor of this. So this is from the very first chapter from Earth to the Moon. This is the Gun Club sitting around uh, talking. <clears throat> This is horrible, said Tom Hunter one evening while rapidly carbonizing his wooden legs in the fireplace of the smoking room. Nothing to do, nothing to look forward to. What a loathsome existence. When again shall the guns arouse us in the morning with their delightful reports? Those days are gone by, said Jolly Billsby, trying to extend his missing arms. It was a delightful once upon a time. One invented a gun, and hardly was it cast, then one hastened to try it in the face of the enemy. Then one returned to camp with a word of encouragement from Sherman or a friendly shake from the hand of McClellan. But now the generals are gone back to their counters, and in place of projectiles, they dispatch bales of cotton. By Jove, the future of gunnery in America is lost. Aye, and no war in prospect, continued the famous James T. Maston, scratching with his steel hook, his gutta-percha cranium. Not a cloud on the horizon, and that, too, is such a critical period in the progress of the science of artillery. Yes, gentlemen, I who address you have myself this very morning perfected a model of a mortar destined to change all the conditions of warfare. Uh, so, right as you can see there... Um, <laughs> Like, uh, the, as, as an aside, Vern is pointing out the parts of their bodies that have been blown off and mangled uh, in their pursuits as they as they as they whine about no longer being able to create implements of destruction. And uh, this version here that we had has a great illustration with it, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That, oh. that engraving is terrific. <laughs> there, yeah, there are a number of really delightful illustrations that uh, I, I would urge anybody if, if you know after you listen to this episode and you're intrigued, please seek out these uh, the Williams translations. This annotated for Birds of the Moon is terrific. Um, so, oh, sorry, go ahead, Gigi. I was just going to say, I you know, yeah, and every time they're mentioned, they always make a point, you know, to mention, you know, such and such, you know, with his missing legs, you know, he had two right. peg legs, and this guy has <laughs> right. two hooks, and every single. Yeah, they always make sure – he always makes sure to mention that. <laughs> right, right. And so it's – so right off the bat, we're like, OK. Like he's he's a playful writer, um, which really sort of belies his reputation. Um, so anyway, so this uh, – so as as the evening wears on, these members of the gun club, the kind of the, the primary characters we'd be following from here are the president, M.P. Barbicane, uh, J.T. Maston, a General Morgan, and a Major Elphiston. Resolve among themselves that the solution to this malaise, the solution to this what are we to do to advance the science of artillery, they're going to shoot the moon. That's right, everybody. They, <laughs> they, they uh, commit themselves to the idea of firing a projectile to the moon using their science as artillerists. Uh, and following up on this, we get what may be the first of um, – you know, this is one of those kind of annoying uh, tropes you see crop up again and again in science fiction, the info dump, uh, because we, <laughs> we have a chapter devoted to – they send a letter to the, uh, to the Cambridge Observatory. Um, I guess this must be like associated with Yale University, I suppose. Is that – no, Harvard is it, Cambridge. Excuse me. I mixed up my Ivies. Uh -oh. oh, God. Oh, I know. They're really going to come for me now. Um, but uh, there's an entire chapter devoted to – a letter sent to this observatory and its response where stipulating all of the various like the 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 like how you know 
where can we best best place this cannon on the on the planet Earth? When would be the time to shoot? Like, what kind? You know, how far away is the moon? What kind of initial velocity would we need? Um, and then, so there's the the letter back from the observatory answering all of this in detail, all all calculated out for us, the listener or the reader rather, which I will not inflict on you. There's a lot the of math in this book. I uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I don't know enough to. To check his uh, formulas, but uh, he <laughs> there's a lot of math in this. <laughs> there really is, yeah. So the 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 upshot is sort of uh, capturing it all that these these gentlemen in the gun club, um, uh, who have already with their announcement captured the imagination of the country, uh, without even knowing how far away the moon is yet. Um, but they get all they need to know. So first, the cannon ought to be planted in a country situated between zero degrees and 28 degrees north or south of latitude. So you got to be close to the equator to get your best shot. Uh, it ought to be pointed directly at the zenith of the moon. The projectile ought to be propelled with an initial velocity of 12,000 yards per second. Uh, it ought to be discharged at 10 hours, 46 minutes, and 40 seconds on the 1st of December of the next year, because that's when the moon will be at its closest to the planet Earth. Um, it will meet the moon four days after its discharge precisely at midnight on the 4th of December at the moment of its transit across the zenith. The members of the gun club ought, therefore, without delay to commence the works necessary for such an experiment and to be prepared to set to at work at the moment determined upon. For if they should suffer this 4th of December to go by, they will not find the moon again under the same conditions of perigee and of zenith until 18 years and 11 days afterwards. So there we have... Basically, that's the whole plot wrapped up there. We have the conditions that they will have to engineer for this projectile and the ticking time clock. That all has to be done basically within a uh, within a year's time. Uh, after that, we get a, an entire <laughs> another an entire chapter devoted to um, Gigi. Do you remember that movie, The Mole People? Um, the, like a mystery science theater one. Yeah, yes. they did it on mystery science yeah. theater, and how it op- and how it opens up with that uh, boring guy doddering on about various hollow earth theories. Yes, and he, and the, the the questing mind of man. So Jules Verne was on that trip a century before that guy because oh, he yeah. has a whole chapter called the Romance of the Moon, devoted to the strange questing mind of man, imagining the moon and what its inhabitants are like and how we might get there. So. Pretty bold of Vern to have back to back, just plotless chapters. <laughs> yes, you know it's interesting. I, you know, I it would be so hard to put yourself in the mind of a reader in the eighteen sixties. You know, so yeah. many of the things they're talking at, about the moon here. You know, some of it, you know, we know was totally off base, and then other stuff to us seems, you know, pretty much like, yeah, there's craters on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Big whoop. Right. Everybody knows that. You wonder how much of this was, you know, new information to the people reading it and, you know, something that they, you know, that you wonder, you know, in 1865, somebody reading this chapter, if it was all very interesting to them or if it, it felt like an <laughs> right. info dump to them, too, you know. Oh, right, right. It's and so- the thing is, like, it's, it, that is, I think, um, can be a virtue in science fiction. I'll tell you right now that I first learned about um, basically like general relativity, you know, like Einsteinian physics. Mm-hmm. I learned about from science fiction from reading science fiction stories that used things like, you know, time dilation as a plot point. Yes, um, absolutely. So I think that's, so I think that's, you know, that's something that's I think very valuable. And 
not necessarily unique to science fiction. Um, you know, a lot of like, you know, historical fiction, for instance, can, can be informative in that manner. But, um, but yeah, this was just so, it's very, (laughs) it's very clear that this was written before the, our conventions of what a novel is like had really gelled because it's just very stark. It's just very like, it's not even a character explaining this. It's just Vern saying, you know, here's some, here's some stuff people thought about the moon. Right. Um, And it's, I, I mean, I I certainly haven't you know read a ton of 19th century stuff, but it, it seems yeah. like that was definitely more the way they did it back at, then. And yeah, yeah. I, I, and I I honestly can't remember was this was this serialized initially or was it uh, as one publication? I believe it was as one publication because um, the, as I understand it, the uh, he Vern had gotten a contract with a publisher earlier that year to basically crank out three books a year. Okay, so he was working for a publisher, so it wasn't necessarily he was writing stories and then selling them to magazines or anything. Right. Um, I'm sure he must have. I'm sure he probably had some output like that, but I, I, I think this would have just been like you know, dropped as one thing, which does make its kind of disjointed nature a little more odd because you're right. Like it feels more like, you know, if if each chapter was like an installment week to week. It, uh, it, uh, you know, if you, if you had told me, yeah, this thing came out in, uh, you know, a magazine, you know, one chapter per month, it would have felt, you know, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And and so, I mean, there's a, a little bit here too, at the beginning where you could almost mix up chapters a bit and it, you know, it wouldn't right. matter that much. <laughs> right. It, it really wouldn't. There was, um, and sort of following up on, uh, this chapter, this, this questing mind of man portion, um, is I guess kind of a nod to what you were thinking about, like how, how informed would a typical 19th century reader be on, uh, on these topics? Because there is a chapter devoted to, uh, every American getting swept up in moon fever and reading up on all the stuff like apogees and, and orbits and uh, and Keplerian orbital mechanics and whatnot to get mm-hmm. learnt, um, which was kind of you know kind of interesting and and another you know another info dump. Well, it you know I can see you know that makes that doesn't. It- to the extent that he makes it happen in the book, it seems a little. Uh, I don't know about that, but you do see it. I mean, you know, with the last eclipse, yeah, yeah. the number, the uh, the number of people, you know, going crazy with the last eclipse about it, and of course, the number of people like you know making tons of money off of that. Right, so right, it, exactly. People can yeah. get swept up in things like that, but it it does yeah. seem. A little bit where he's all, you know, it was the, you know, it was the only news in every newspaper in the land. And I believe, I believe <laughs> right. he numbers how many newspapers it's into. He, he does. He's, he's very into the numbers. exact details, which. Yes, he you know, is. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's his thing. It's, it's definitely not the way somebody would do it today, but that's right. definitely his thing to give you the exact details when you. You could have said it was in hundreds of newspapers. No, he's going to tell right, you exactly right. how many. And and their circulations. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and and you, you get the feeling that, you know, he's like kicking back like, you know, or like maybe like the 
I guess the feeling he's trying to invoke in the reader is one of like respect for like, ah, yes, this, this fellow knows what I'm all about. I'm a no nonsense guy. And I like to see these numbers mm-hmm. and we're going to get a lot more of that as it goes on because the, uh, the next chapter sort of picks the plot back up and there is a committee formed in the gun club. Oh, I guess we should have mentioned um, one insane thing about the gun club is that their clubhouse is like a cathedral made out of guns. Uh, I <laughs> I forgot to mention that in that first chapter, but it's literally like has columns that are fused cannons and like decorative uh, chandeliers made of rifles and stuff. It's really a, a trip to read the, the description. And again, it has to be part of the send up basically. Yeah. If uh, you know, I have seen some kind of movie version of this, but I, they certainly didn't do any justice to that. In it. that, I mean, that's <laughs> right. the kind of thing that you really, I mean, you, you need like a, you need like a Tim Burton uh, in <laughs> set dressing for that. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but again, the, the engraving that was included in this edition does, uh, does a, a pretty good job. It, it, it does look in, completely insane. Um, so there's a committee formed of the sort of the, the leading lights of the gun club, Barbicane, uh, Elphiston, Morgan, and Maston. And there's a chapter devoted to them basically hammering out the dimensions of the projectile. They start with, you know, how are we going to, you know, what kind of projectile are we going to be shooting? And in an interesting bit of, I think another trait that science fiction, that I think is, is, is typical of science fiction and almost definitional of it, is that it includes a little bit of science beyond science. And this is a term that I picked up from uh, the wonderful history of the genre by Alexei Panshin uh, called World Beyond the Hill. And he, in his in his own genre history and his own sort of critical appraisal, mentions this as kind of the one of the hallmarks of the genre in that you would have writing that includes scientific knowledge or achievements that are not yet current, but are closely extrapolatable from current developments. And where Vern works this into this chapter is that his uh, his characters determined that the projectile will need to be made of aluminum. Now, this is a bit of science beyond science because at the time Vern was writing, it would have been vastly prohibitively expensive to extract that much aluminum from aluminum ores. Scientists knew that aluminum was one of the most common elements on the surface of the Earth, but their actual – they had not developed a way to feasibly extract it from the ores that it was contained in except by means of great expense. But the characters in talking about it mentioned that like, oh, yes, thanks to so-and-so's new process, aluminum should be such and such you know, amount of money per pound uh, by the time that we are purchasing it or whatever. And indeed, in a few years uh, after the publication of this novel, um, I think maybe even like within like two or three, you had economically viable mass produced aluminum, um, which is, you know, pretty. You know what, Vern? Cool trick. You know, I got to hand it to you. It was very interesting. I've. I've seen, uh, you know, in museums, they have like uh, royal jewelry from the 1700s made of aluminum because it was, you know, like right up there with platinum at at the time. Right, right. And when they capped the Washington Monument, they used an aluminum pyramid because it was, you know, the most expensive thing they could think of. (laughs) Because that was the most, right, that was the most like extravagant thing. And now now if you're uh, pig-headed and don't, you know, and aren't a good recycler, you just throw that stuff out. Right. Yeah, it's it, it, like throwing away your gold can. I don't know. Um, so following up on this, oh, they, they determined that it needs to be nine feet in diameter and 20,000 pounds. Uh, and they just decide like, eh, we'll just make it a sphere because we're just lobbing a thing 
you know, at, at this point, they're basically just, they literally, all they want to do is shoot the moon. So <laughs> it's just going to be like just a big cannonball. <clears throat> Excuse me. Made of aluminum. Um, then they go on to hammer out the dimensions of the cannon, eventually arriving that it's going to be cast iron instead of bronze. Uh, it's going to be 900 feet long with a nine foot bore. That's the, the empty part in the middle and walls six feet thick. Then, uh, after that, they determine how the propellant will be, uh, will be, uh, you know, all brought together for all this. And they, and this is a little more of the science beyond science because they determine that they're going to use gun cotton rather than gunpowder. And I had heard the term gun cotton before, but had no idea what that actually was. I just assumed it was some kind of like, I don't know, extra padding for a, like a muzzle loading musket or something. But apparently what it is, is you can take cotton just like in your clothes cotton and treat it with nitric acid and it becomes an explosive uh so much much lighter weight than gunpowder so that the idea here and of course at the time this was similar to to aluminum no one had really been able to make it stable like scientists knew that you could treat cotton with nitric acid and it would make this explosive uh you know these these explosive fibers but it was very uh, unstable and could like blow up out of nowhere, you know, like like uh, like nitroglycerin in a in a in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Um, but again, a couple of years after the publication of this novel, some enterprising fellow managed to uh, make it stable. So it was like again, points for Vern. There we go. Um, and uh, a little bit later, there's uh, kind of the next plot point. Um, and and I, I will say that plot is I don't even like to use the word plot for. <laughs> Because really, it's just kind of a bunch of stuff that happens. Um, it, it's kind of hard to draw like a through line exactly, but there are things that crop up that then are ad- addressed again later, and this is one of those. In a in a chapter called uh, something like the one dissenter out of twenty five million, uh, and again, this kind of hyperbole of like everyone has moon fever, but there's one guy. There's one guy who isn't going to fall for that. Yes, it, the the whole his one enemy scene. It it's. It's it's a pretty wild idea. <laughs> it's, it's, it's of all, <laughs> it, it is probably the least likely element in this in this book about a nine hundred foot moon cannon. Um, yeah, but the uh, but the the man in question is a a a naval armor developer named Captain Nickel, and he is Barbicane's nemesis, the president of the Gun Club, and he is Barbicane's nemesis because, of course. He was in the business of creating impenetrable armor, whilst Barbicane was in the business of creating irresistible artillery. So they had a personal rivalry throughout the war, even though they were both on the Union side. Um, but uh, just, you know, Captain Nickel, I guess, just for the sake of the honor of armor, was very upset that Barbicane kept, and of course, his, I guess his professional pride, that Barbicane kept developing artillery that could pierce his armor for the ironclad warships. Um, so Captain Nickel, in his feverish hatred of Barbicane, his his fixated uh, fury, and and this is where the the annotations got a little Freudian on us, uh, which is, and you know not without cause. It makes the point that there's a kind of erotic element to all this, with all the talk of penetration versus fear of penetration. Um, but in any way, um, or rather, in any case. Uh, Captain Nickel makes it makes a wager against every stage of the project. So, like you know, I bet you two thousand dollars that you can't dig the shaft to cast the cannon, and I bet you three thousand dollars that you can't, you know, 
melt the iron to cast the whatever, whatever, whatever. So he basically it all adds up to fifteen thousand buckaroonies in eighteen sixty five dollars, which uh, you know uh, adjusting for inflation is a is a whole buttload of money. Um, but Barbicane accepts; he accepts this wager. So there's the a little a little interpersonal conflict frisson there, which will not be addressed again for a number of chapters. <laughs> which they you know they uh, he puts the razzle dazzle on it a little bit, but. All of his points are are very sound on why these things would not work. You know, it's I guess that's Vern's way of getting through it, you know, putting the the objections that he obviously knew about into the voice right. of the bad character so he could dismiss. Them. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, you, you might think this is too outlandish, but that just makes you a bitter old, you know, naval armor expert. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so in one of the um, in one of the more, I guess you know, the stranger chapters, uh, there's a so of course so the and, and again predicting you know accurately how space flight on the North American continent was going to work. Um, Vern of course determined that uh, you know for the Gun Club they have to put their cannon somewhere below the 28th parallel, so you know closer to onto the equator, and there are only two states in the entire Union. Well, they're recently. You know <laughs> the recently uh, subjugated Confederacy. You might say. Yeah, you might not want to say. <laughs> watch <laughs> <Right>. your phrasing <laughs> in 1865. Right, this, yeah, this is 1865. <laughs> that is still militarily occupied territory, which again is very strange. Like Vern clearly did not have a very good grasp on just how raw this all was in 1865. Because the way he writes, it's just like, okay, well, the war's over. You know, everyone's everyone's fine now. You know, the war is over and it's all decided. We're all one union again. Um, yeah, that, that may be so the biggest the, fiction in the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Most outlandish yeah. uh, ideas. Jules Verne, read Reconstruction by Eric Foner. Do better. Um, <laughs> but uh, so anyway, the, the only the, so the only territory in the United States that fits these parameters is going to be either in Florida or Texas, the southernmost uh, states in the union. And so there is a massive, like a massive uproar of the partisans of Texas and Florida who travel to Baltimore to harangue the gun club about which state shall have the honor of hosting the moon gun. Um, and the gun club eventually goes with Florida. They go with Tampa, <laughs> which is, which I can't tell you why I thought that was so funny. It's just something, I don't know, something about Tampa, but they're, they're, they go with a site that's uh, sort of in the heights above uh, Tampa. Uh, and part of their reasoning is because, well, that's the only site in Florida that it would be suitable to us. So we can go ahead and we say we give it to Florida. We only we know we're going to have it right there. If they went with Texas, then there were like 10 sites that would then keep fighting with each other about where to place it. And we don't have time for that. Um, he, he does have to do a little bit of hand waving on uh, on elevations in Florida. They <laughs> I yes, I was I noticed that in that the site that's picked, it's it's within a day's travel of Tampa, but it's also eighteen hundred feet above sea level. And I don't think that's. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm 1,800 feet above sea level here, and it's, we're definitely higher than Florida. <laughs> I think Florida, it's more like 18 feet. 
Yeah, yeah, that was a bit. That was a bit odd, but you know, we'll you know we'll, we'll allow him these flights of fancy. It, it was I think, pretty amazing. I think he I think, got into it a little bit and then realized that, uh, that that his gun would be you know three quarters full of water, and he didn't have anything right, right, right around that without. Oh yeah. Oh wait. Oh, there was a hill. Yeah, there was a hill. There, there was a yeah. It was a big old hill. It was very dry. We loved it. <laughs> um, but yeah. So the and again in a kind of uh, parody of American bellicosity, which which runs through this whole novel. Um, the the Texas delegation, the partisans of Texas, are so outraged that they're basically rioting in the streets, and the Baltimore police has to round them up and just herd them into cattle cars on a train and just like slap the train's ass and get it to just haul thirty miles per hour out of town, just to get them out of Baltimore, um, which was a pretty uh, was a pretty amusing uh, element. I did like that. Thir- yeah, that thirty miles an hour was re- like really getting them out of their back. <laughs> That's really that is that is hauling ass to go thirty miles an hour. Um, so following up on that, we have another. Just a, uh, Gigi, I know that you love numbers. I know that you love lists of numbers. How would you like a list of all of the states of Europe and the amounts that they contributed to the Gun Club for the completion of this gun? A moon gun project. Would you like to read an entire chapter of that? Because I certainly would. And thankfully, Jules Verne has provided it. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a, a, you know, you talk about, you know, his lists of things and the lists of every country contributed exactly this many dollars. And, you know, and then he obviously was grinding a few axes in places there on these countries that, yeah, you know, yeah. oh, but these, I believe, what wasn't it? England didn't even give one it was single England. dollar at all, right. or one single pound because of their stupid English. As the, as the way, I believe there was a passage in that said, um, as the English share one soul among their 20 millions, they, <laughs> they did not, they, they did not contribute a single penny. Yeah. The English don't chip in at all. He also got in a dig. I thought this was interesting. He got in a dig at, um, so kind of Vern's personal politics were very staunchly little R Republican. He was a great admirer of the United States and the, and the Union side in the Civil War specifically, um, partly because he at the time was living under the Second French Empire under Napoleon III, which he really loathed. He really despised it. Um, he felt it was a real betrayal of the entire spirit of the French Revolution and this kind of little R Republicanism that he believed in. Um so he mentions that Mexico put forth a paltry 300 bucks, and this was in part a dig at Napoleon III because I believe at the time of this writing, it was Napoleon III's invasion of Mexico had kind of like taken it over in order to create an allied empire of Mexico that would be allied to the Bonaparte mm-hmm. house. Um, so that was his little dig at, uh, at Napoleon III. So there's a couple of interesting things in the in this in this uh, chapter, but mostly it is like and Denmark, little Denmark provided nine thousand dollars, and you know it's just on and on and on. Uh, but we finally get to the project of actually digging the nine hundred foot shaft into that that great rocky outcropping uh, outside of Tampa <laughs> that we all know and love. Um, and of course, there's a great a, a great deal of uh, of of you know, triumphalist uh, engineering talk going on with that. Um, and they, they begin it though. He, he talks about shipping in 1500 laborers from new Orleans, having been recruited, you know, there in the, in the port of new Orleans. Uh, and there's a, a little passage I thought was very interesting. Uh, let's see. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Here we go. Yeah. Um, attracted by the high pay and considerable bounties offered by the gun club, he had enlisted a choice legion of stokers, iron founders, lime burners, miners, brick makers, and artisans of every trade without distinction of color, black and white. As many of these people brought their families with them, their departure resembled a perfect emigration. This is 1865. And Vern is proposing that there is colorblind hiring in New Orleans. And it's just, <laughs> it's just like, I, 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 I do appreciate that Vern truly admired the union cause and this, uh, and the anti-racism, which it came to represent. Of course, that's, that's this whole other story of uh, how, <laughs> how the union cause came to be anti-slavery and anti-racist, but it is this kind of Pollyanna-ish vision there. I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, yes. And, but he, you know, he, he pairs it right up with, you know, your, most stereotypical possible Native Americans. So yeah, yeah, it, I, I had totally forgotten that part of it. It's like, woo, uh, that's a little, a little. Yeah. That, so yeah. So he he mentions this, the Seminole people as being like they, they're there and they kind of vaguely menace the uh, you know the, the great intrepid engineers and their laborers and whatnot. Um, and the, and there's a kind of like. I don't know. There, there's a certain ambivalence through all this toward – like even as Vern is clearly enamored of the great power 
sort of latent and, and being expressed in industrialism and industrialization, he still allows for there to be actors in these novels that are suspicious of it. Um, and I guess it, you know, it's not that great that they have to be like very stereotypical Indian people, <laughs> but at least they're there and they're, they're sort of hanging away from it because they don't really, you know, they don't, they don't like what's going on with it. Um, and there was another, uh, another, uh, moment in this particular chapter, uh, sort of struck me as being pretty, Again, as Vern being aware of the built-in inhumanities of industrialization and these kind of pharaonic projects and yet making excuses for his characters. And it says here, um, many workmen, it is true, paid with their lives for the rashness inherent in these dangerous labors. But these mishaps are impossible to be avoided, and they are classed among the details with which the Americans troubled themselves but little. That part's true. They have, in fact, more regard for human nature in general than for the individual in particular. Nevertheless, Barbicane professed opposite principles to these and put them in force at every opportunity. So thanks to his care, his intelligence, his useful intervention in all difficulties, his prodigious and humane sagacity, the average of accidents did not exceed that of transatlantic countries, noted for their excessive precautions. France, for instance, among others, where they reckon about one accident for every 200,000 francs of work. So it's really like, like, yeah, some people died, but not as many as could have died if my guy wasn't so good and strong and my friend. <laughs> I mean, you know, his, his character, the, uh, his hero characters do tend to be, you know, very perfect. So I guess, yeah, yeah. you know, I guess you can at least say it wasn't like, you know, nobody was even hurt at all or, you know, something, you know, like that, which would have been right. pretty unbelievable. But still, it's right, like, pretty- you know, you know, this is the number of, you know, do- you know, this country com- com- contributed this many dollars. And yeah, this is how many people died doing this part of it. And this is how many people <laughs> died doing that part of it. You know, we got to keep the numbers straight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I thought it was very interesting. It's it's kind of a like he he has invented for himself a kind of idealized uh, industrial owner. Like he's invented for himself basically a kind of idealized industrial capitalist in that he, you know, is uh, he's the man with all the expertise. He's the owner and the director, but he's also the man with all the expertise. He intervenes at all points to correct his workers and for their own safety because he has their best interest at heart. You know, all, all this kind of stuff is basically like setting up like the, and, you know, as we know from history, not at all how, how mass industrialization worked, but <laughs> it's almost as though like a kind of like he's writing a, a hagiography for what, you know, but I'm sure this is how it could have been. But I'm sure Thomas Edison read that and they're like, yeah, that I am a pretty good guy. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. It's like this, it's this apologia for the, the tyrannical power that industrial capitalists held over their workforces. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it, it was very, it was very interesting for me to note. Um, but uh, so, so with all that work done, we finally have the casting of the great cannon. So, so picture for yourself, there's a, there's a 900 foot shaft in the earth of the tallest mountain in Florida. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and into that is built in the middle, a, uh, a, a basically a tower of, uh, of packed clay, which is going to, you know, when they, when they pour the mold in, that will be the borehole that the projectile will shoot through. And so they have it all 
They have 1,200 furnaces, furnaces arranged around the Great Pit. And this, I think, was the passage that's the most, I don't know, lyrical and just the most emotional in the entire novel was his description of when the great the moment to cast the great cannon came. And so I, I, I marked it here, and uh, if you'll permit me, Gigi, I want to read it for our, for our listeners here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the casting was set for noon. The day before, each furnace had been charged with 114,000 pounds of iron bars stacked crosswise to each other so that the hot air could circulate freely among them. Since morning, 1,200 chimneys had been belching torrents of flame into the air, and the ground was shaking with dull tremors. For every pound of metal to be cast, a pound of coal had to be burned. Thus, there were 68,000 tons of coal, sending a thick curtain of smoke across the face of the sun. This is all written in such triumphalist language. It's just this (laughs) ecological holocaust being perpetrated. Inside the circle of furnaces, the heat soon became unbearable. Their roar resembled the rumble of thunder. Powerful fans added to the noise of the continuous blasts as they fed fresh oxygen to the glowing hearths. To guarantee success, the operation had to be carried out very swiftly. The firing of a cannon would be the signal for releasing the liquid metal, for emptying every furnace. When the preliminaries were completed, the foreman and all hands waited for the signal with impatience and mounting excitement. There was no one inside the circle now. Each foundry master stood at his post, ready to open the tap holes. Barbicane and his colleagues, stationed on a nearby rise of land, supervised the operation. They were ready to fire a cannon as soon as the engineer gave his signal. Shortly before noon, the first drops of metal began to flow. The basins filled up gradually. When the iron was entirely molten, it was allowed to stand for a few moments to facilitate the separation of impurities. At noon, the cannon abruptly fired, sending a tawny flash into the air. 1,200 tap holes were opened simultaneously. 1,200 fiery serpents unfolded their incandescent coils and crept toward the central pit. There was a terrific noise as they dropped 900 feet. It was a moving, magnificent spectacle. The ground trembled as these cascades of molten metal, sending whirls of smoke toward the sky, volatized the moisture in the core mold and sent it through the vent holes in the stone revetment in the form of dense vapors. Artificial clouds spiraled toward the zenith, reaching a height of 3,000 feet. A savage, wandering on the other side of the horizon, would have thought some new crater was being formed in the heart of Florida, but there was neither eruption nor tornado nor tempest nor clash of the elements. None of those terrible catastrophes nature is capable of producing. No, it was man alone who had created these reddish vapors, these gigantic flames worthy of a volcano, these loud tremors like a shock of an earthquake, these reverberations rivaling the sound of hurricanes. It was his hand that had flung into an abyss he had created a whole Niagara of molten metal. Folks, now there's some industrial triumphalism. <laughs> and he, the, uh, this, uh, his description here of his chapter about casting the cannon, he gets into that way more than actually firing it off. It, you know, yeah, yeah. It, this is, that's definitely, I mean, to me anyway, that seems like that was his favorite part. He, you, you really see him getting into it. In <laughs> really, chapter. like you could, you could, I could almost feel him like scratching like madly on on this yeah. paper, like his notebook. Like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then the molten torrents, you know. Yes, uh, but yeah, that was easily the 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 emotional high point of the novel. I would say uh, was casting the cannon. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we do have a little bit of human drama being injected though uh, soon after because a telegram arrives from a French adventurer named Michel Ardain, who requests that the sphere projectile be changed to a bullet-shaped one with provisions for him to be inside it. 
so this Michel Ardan is is a pretty interesting character. It's a composite of people that Verne knew. It's mostly based on Verne's close friend, uh, Felix Tournachon, who uh, went by the pseudonym Nadar, or Nadar, I don't know how he would pronounce it. Um, and he was best known in France for being the inventor of aerial photography. He, he was the first guy to take a, uh, a, a daguerreotype camera up in a hot air balloon and, uh, and take some pictures. Um, and he was also, interestingly, he was also the guy who first was kind of the go-between to get Verne a contract with those publishers for these technological wonder stories he was going to be writing. Um, so as a kind of, uh, as, as a kind of nod to this friend who really got this ball rolling his the, the easily the most heroic character of the novel is, uh, named after a, a, is named a, an anagram of his pseudonym. Uh, so Arda on his arrival holds a mass meeting to the, cause of course by now, I guess we haven't mentioned hundreds of thousands of people are always milling around watching the, the great, task being done this is uh apparently like the the population of tampa has now exploded uh and has over a hundred thousand people living there just on the curiosity of uh the great moon gun so ardan holds this uh massive meeting to explain himself and his ideas to this massive crowd um he he spins this kind of a, a strange uh uh vision of like mass passenger service trains of projectiles shot from moon cannons. Like you would, like you would have like a literal train of a bunch of projectiles, like holding like, you know, like a, well, like train passengers and they'd be fired out of a moon cannon to go on a pleasure cruise around the moon. Um, but, uh, Ardan and Barbican agree, you know, people are raising all kinds of objections. They all agree that the moon itself is, is, totally uninhabitable. It would not have any air, you know, and then, you know, Vern gets that right. Of course he's, he actually has a pretty good grip on what the moon is like. Uh, but, uh, he also would think that uh, every, every human would want to do a flyby by being shot out of a gigantic cannon. And so Ardan has this vision of a, a cannonball train. It's just very strange, <laughs> but it has, a, it has a lovely, just a very charming, uh, uh, engraving with it. I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm hoping to post after this episode goes up, I want to post that on the, uh, on the show, the show social media feeds, because it's my absolute favorite thing. It's like a, it's like a, 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 a locomotive projectile and a train and a caboose. And it has a little smokestack. Uh, yes. it's, just, it's, it's really adorable. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Uh, for me, his character is just a little bit too much. You know, he's the kindest, bravest, right, right. most wonderful man anyone has ever he's, met. You know, he, he's world you know, he's, famous. He's so be- everyone knows he's, him. You know, he's beautiful. You know, he's a genius. He, he's so brave. He's so generous. You know, his only fault is that, you know, he, he's too brave. His <laughs> it's, you know, if, 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 if Vern had an editor, they, they, they might have told him something like, you know, hey, dial it back a little bit. Dial it, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because it is very much like a kind of like, I mean, clearly Vern thought very highly of his friend. Yes. <laughs> so he was just like, it was just like, and my bestie is the coolest and he's so handsome. He looks like a lion. He is so good. Um, so uh, in any case, uh, Barbican agrees to let him. They're going to change what the projectile is to to allow a human being to be inside it to go on this trip, um, and you know I mentioned uh, how like there's not so much plot as 
things are broached and then are brought back again later. Uh, well, Captain Nickel is back. The uh, the enemy of Barbican, uh, Barbicane, who had uh, made that massive wager. Um, he had now, of course, I think at this point in the project, he was down like $10,000 because he had lost a bunch of the bets. Um, so Captain Nickel challenges Barbicane to uh, a duel. And the way that Vern has it, this is apparently a, ty- a specific type of American duel called a Kentucky duel. Uh, and I really – I thought this was fantastic. Uh, so it says here uh, – he writes, nothing is more dreadful than private duels in America. The two adversaries attack each other like wild beasts. Then it is that they might well covet those wonderful properties of the Indians of the prairies, their quick intelligence, their ingenious cunning, their scent of the enemy. A single mistake, a moment's hesitation, a single false step may cause death. On these occasions, Yankees are often accompanied by their dogs and keep up the struggle for hours. So apparently there was this type of duel that instead of like, you know, shooting at 10 paces, it was basically like, you know, all right, we're going to be in these woods at the same time and you better brought your best bloodhounds and your finest rifle because we're hunting each other like the most dangerous game. Which, which yes, is, you know, and that was something I'd, I'd never heard of that before. Never heard you, of it. I never heard of it. You yeah. Know, you wonder, I, I don't know. I, you know, like you said, it, it seems to be a thing that sort of existed, but yeah, you, you wonder if he didn't, you know, some, he read some newspaper article back in France and you're like, oh, yeah, right. that's what everybody always does in America. <laughs> exactly. Be, because. Uh, that that is certainly not you know what comes to mind my mind if you say you're going to have a duel, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, and and even then, like I mean, the most what's the most famous duel in American history? Uh, Hamilton versus Spur, right. and that was absolutely like a ten paces and shoot deal, you know. Yeah. So uh, now that's not to say that things weren't rough, you know, out Kentucky way, uh, you know, sort of in the 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 sort of expansion of white settlers days. There was a. Um, there was a form of personal combat called eye gouging, which was uh, the sort of the the martial art of the uh, kind of Kentucky and Northwestern Territories frontier, which literally was you you would just get your thumbs in the other guy's eyes until he gave up or you pop those eyeballs. Um, and that's real. And so, you know, I'm willing to I'm willing to say probably the Kentucky duel happened at some point. But I think you're right, Gigi, that like. This, this, the way it's written, Vern seems to think or like wants the audience to think like, oh, yeah, this is how Americans are all the time. Yeah, it is, so. <laughs> this is every other week that, you know, every town in America, people are going out and most dangerous at gaming themselves. Right, right. Which is, again, a kind of, again, this he has this notion of Americans as this just implacably hostile uh, bellicose people. <laughs> Which but, uh, is not exactly... Um, I, again, again, I can't fault him no. too much on that. <laughs> but uh, on getting news of this, that, uh, that Barbicane and Nickel were doing this Kentucky duel out in the woods outside of Tampa and in the lofty mountains outside of Tampa, um, Ardan and J.T. Maston of the Gun Club race into the woods to try to find them. And I, what I thought... And this... I don't know. I, I want to get. I want to get your read on this, Gigi, because I thought this was pretty interesting. They first happen upon Nickel, who has set his rifle down, leaving himself just a sitting duck. He set his rifle down and is rescuing a bird that's been trapped in a massive spider web. And so they walk up to him in this moment of mercy that he's, you know, performing, and explain that they're like, "Look, we, you know, we don't want you guys to kill each other. Let's all go together and find Barbicane." And then they find Barbicane, 
again, you know, not paying attention to his surroundings like you might if you were being hunted in the most dangerous game. Um, and they find him sketching in a, in a like, you know, sort of doing rough calculations, resolving the G-Force problem for uh, – for how Arden was going to survive being shot out of a cannon. <clears throat> he comes up with a – apparently he, he arrives at some kind of like segmented layered water cushion kind of thing. In, in any case, so they all walk up together and peace is made between Barbicane and Nickel when Arden suggests that why don't you guys both come with me in the projectile? And they're all for it and no hard feelings. It's it, <laughs> so it, like – it felt very weird to me. The 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 whole, you know, you know, they're both you know, they're both men of science, they're both, you know, really not that violent, you know, ver yo, know, you know, they they're saved the animal, you know. Or not that not that personally but, violent. But I it's guess, so yeah. completely you know, like three pages before, you know, this he's having like a fit and challenging him to a duel. It seems like right. there it seems like there's something missing in there to make that even seem it just does not – A doesn't follow B. It's it's a very weird transition they do there. Yeah, yeah. And it is kind of – it resolves the conflict between Nickel and Barbicane and, and I think the, the annotations made note of this that like apparently Nickel was just upset because he wasn't included. And so, and so all of this was just – he was so upset about not being included on the grandest scientific project of the age that he was ready to shoot – one of the uh, head guys of it, which um, you know, that's that's not bad, but it seems like that should have been on the page more. That should right, that, that, exactly, that, you know, that that's a you know perfectly good uh, character development in there, but it seemed it, it, it's it was handled very weirdly to me. Right, it, it's it's nowhere. It's nowhere to be found. Like earlier in the text, it's really entirely by inference. That you even get any of it, and and for a guy, for a guy who spends an entire chapter laying out how much money friggin' Portugal gave to the gun club, you'd think he could spare a moment or two to sort of give a little more detail on the motivations of these characters. Yes, <laughs> but, yeah. But, on, you know, honestly, is, none of the characters are characters. You know, you, they're not. They're not. You, you they can are, barely even call yeah. them archetypes. They're you know very. They're, they're cardboard cutouts, you know. This is the the good scientist, and this is the you know jealous scientist. You know, <laughs> right. this is the perfect explorer. It that to me, that's you know even more than the lists of you know uh, of who donated how many dollars. The yeah. the you know the the one dimensional character sort of thing. Right. That you know. Which is hardly unique to him as far as science fiction goes. The- oh, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, what I thought was is kind of – I guess we can talk more about it when we kind of wrap up the, uh, the the plot synopsis here. But like there's a lot in science fiction that is present right at the beginning in yes. this novel. <laughs> so uh, so with all that resolved there, the interpersonal conflict resolved, uh, there's a little bit about um, more explaining about how they're going to chemically create breathable air – uh, to have with them for a couple of months worth. Um, there's discussion about the massive telescope, which will be constructed in the Rocky Mountains to observe it all, which is, again, prescient of uh, Mr. Verne because that is, uh, you know, scientists would, would soon conclude that what you want to do to get good, you know, good, good readings through a telescope is to get it as high up as possible so you have as little atmospheric disturbance of light particles as possible. Um, so we finally, finally, Get to the gun being fired. 
with the uh, the projectile is loaded up in there. Uh, Ardan, Barbicane, and Nickel are all in there. The gun is fired, deafening all the onlookers. And in something I thought was pretty hilarious, uh, the ever the ever avid Mastin apparently was standing too close when the thing went off, and it says he was blown a hundred feet back. Yes. Which I, I think if you're <laughs> if you're already a man with like two hooks for hands. And a skull that's half made out of like ebony, and you get blown a hundred feet, and you're already like fifty. Like, come on, man, you're dead. But <laughs> apparently not. He's made of. T- he's an American, so he's made of tough stuff. Uh, I-, I thought an interesting touch was that um, Vern mentions that uh, the this boom was, of course, heard all across the continent and even across the ocean in Africa. The last pay- the last faint reverberations of that vibration were heard as a kind of low rumble by the, uh, by the inhabitants of Guinea. Um, and then in a, in a, in a marvelously anticlimactic turn, uh, cloudy weather all across the United States. So <laughs> no one can actually check in their telescopes to see if it's going anywhere or if they all just like blew up or if it's crashed back, no one can see anything for like four days. And then the, the clouds finally clear. There's a big storm. The clouds finally clear. The uh, observatory on top of the Rocky Mountains is able to conclude that they have seen the projectile, and by their calculations, it has entered orbit around the moon, either to eventually crash into it or to just orbit forever as our three intrepid astronauts uh, die of suffocation. And, and that's I, the end. I had totally <laughs> forgotten it ends on a cliffhanger like this. I, it ends on a cheap cliffhanger. I uh, I apparently had read, you know, the later the sequel and mm-hmm. I had totally for, it might have even been, you know, an edition that combined the two. Together. I was going to say, I think typically they're published together. Yeah. So I totally I got to the end. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> We're not even getting to the, the good stuff here. It's like. Right, it's like a book about building a giant cannon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a book about raise fundraising to build a giant cannon. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was really I was really taken aback by that. I was like I was getting close to him. Like, okay, well, uh, you know, are they gonna you know they're gonna wrap this up? Like, what are they doing here? And like, nope, just no. And I have to think part of that is like, you know. Vern was under contract to deliver three books a year. Mm-hmm. What better way to do that than to just, yeah, I'll break up one idea into two books. <laughs> no. Yes. Yes. Because, I, I think we might be because this some is savvy. absolutely not, you know, if this is absolutely, you know, half of the story that yeah, it, yeah. it's, it's not that satisfying to end where he ends it. And I think, um, I, I guess, you know, spoiler alert for everybody. Uh, the, in the sequel, which I, I have not read, I read the little synopsis at the end of, of this book here. It, it turns out that actually they just whipped around the moon and then flew back to Earth and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Is that, am I? Yeah. So that's. Yes. They, they don't actually right, right. land on the moon. They don't land on the moon. Well, of, you know, of course they did because they can't get off again because right. it was a friggin' gun <laughs> that right. shot them there. Yeah. I have to wonder, like, what did any of them expect to happen? <laughs> It's very odd. Um, and also, and, and, but I mean to say like, that, that resolution of this cliffhanger is itself anticlimactic because like it turns out like, oh, yeah, actually, we weren't trapped. It was fine. You know, here we, we just got a little wet. And I, I guess they probably relate their their story of you know what happened and what they saw 
But uh, which is another yes, thing that ties into like what I was saying, how it really feels serialized, how, right, you know, they, right. they, they, they promise things they do not deliver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and honestly, I'm look, I'm having to look up right now to see if it was, in fact, initially published in a serialized format, because it just makes much more sense if uh, if that's the way, because there's a lot of. And a lot of later science fiction would do that. Like I remember reading um, Foundation. I know you said you hadn't read much Asimov, and I haven't really either, but I, I read Foundation. Um, and I remember thinking when I first read it that uh, it, it seemed kind of episodic and disjointed. And there's a good reason for that, and that's because it's what's called a fix-up. Mm-hmm. It was originally independently published short stories set in the same conceptual universe – but they were published as just their own separate short stories. And only later, like in some cases like 10 years after the publication of the first story, was it compiled into a novel. And that's what's called a fix-up. And that was very, very common in mid-century science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, OK. Let's see. I'm looking this up here. First part. Got plots. OK. Location date. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it looks like it was printed. Yeah, it was printed as a hardback book yeah. in 1865. That was, there it was. <laughs> but, yeah, Which is uh, odd. <clears throat> yeah, if you're going to write a book from the Earth to the Moon, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really, I mean, I guess it delivers, but not really. You know, you're, right, you right. see that title, you expect that you're going to be getting a lot of, uh, you know, going to a lot the moon. Of, a lot of moon content, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it's more like uh, the preparation for it. Right, right. It, it would be like, um, it would be like uh, you know, we write a book called Apollo 11. And the entire book is about the engineering and construction of the Saturn V. Yeah, and then the last pages, and they shot the rocket off. And they shot the rocket off. Yeah, I mean, it really was something. But the thing is, like, I, I will say, like, you know, we've we've had folks, we've had a lot of fun here today, nitpicking, making fun. I really enjoyed this much more than I expected to. I because the the reputation Vern has is, and the, and I realize now there's there's of course a reason for it is like. Well, we were talking earlier about how both of us sort of tend toward the soft end of the spectrum and like the hard science fiction versus more mm-hmm. sort of, you know, less hard, we might say. Yeah. Um, I believe there's a there's a page on TV tropes, which don't ever go to that website, but calls it the Mose scale of science fiction hardness and a little it's a little geology joke there right. about the uh, mineral hardness. But um, but Vern has the the reputation as being the, the hard science fiction guy. And he's often contrasted with H.G. Wells in this respect. But I think it's interesting to reflect on the fact that H.G. Wells wasn't born until two years after this book was published. Like Wells and Verne were contemporaries sort of, but Verne was a generation ahead of Wells. He, he, and and I, think, I think part of why he has this reputation for being the hard science fiction guy comes in part because he's a very – He's he's establishing a lot of points in the genre. He's not really the beginning point of the genre, and, and I guess we didn't really. You know, I, I might do, a, I guess, another a, sort of a bonus extra episode to sort of talk about the the various scholarship on where science fiction begins. Mm-hmm. But typically, most everyone accepts Frankenstein as being the first science fiction novel, and that, of course, was you know twenty years before 
uh, you know, Jules Verne was born. But I think part of like his reputation for being the hard science fiction guy is because he really was and, – and I think in a way that likely wasn't common at the time, he was working science concepts into this fiction in a concrete way. He was really – you know, he did the back of the envelope calculations for his characters to be able to say we're going to need X amount of iron. You know, we're going to need right. to fire this projectile at such and such velocity. And that's something that can be that can be done in a ham handed way that can be done in a more elegant way. Uh, it, it, it can be done. I don't necessarily go for science fiction where that's the point. A lot of people in the fandom will, I guess, the, the literary fandom um, where they'll like get upset at a book because its science is bad, and that's to me just completely missing the point of what a science fiction novel is trying to do. But um, I'm, I'm being very rambly right now, and I just I just want to say that I actually really did enjoy the 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 experience of reading this because Vern is much funnier than I would have thought. He's very arch. He's very sarcastic. He's very ironic in a yeah. way that makes all of his it makes it so much more confusing as to why these characters are such cardboard cutouts. If he has enough sort of sense to be this arch in his writing, then he has a notion of human emotion. Like he has this, he's smart. Like he knows, I don't know. It was a very strange, um, yes. Some of his descriptions like of the gun club could be something Twain could have done, but exactly. That's exactly nothing like that. Right. Like Twain could have that very – of course has that rise sensibility, but it also shows in the way the characters are written. And in Vern, like his narrator voice is very wry, mm -hmm. but his actual dialogue – no one says anything that comes close to like a joke really in in, in universe. Like it's a joke. Right. Yes. Like Vern will put a joke in their mouths, but none of the people in their speaking are trying to make a joke. I wonder how much of that comes from, you know, even with the better translation, you know, you, I wonder right, how much right. of that comes from translation, you know, because humor is such a hard thing to translate, you know, and from it is one language so dependent. to another. Right. It's because it's so you know, dependent if you on read linguistic it in, you know, context. Origin, yeah. you know, if you were sitting in France in 1865, if something <laughs> in the dialogue would have made you laugh, it's – but it, it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> And I guess maybe part of that is because he's writing um, – he's writing in part that this is a, a kind of satire of American militarism. Right. That perhaps it's necessary that deadpan. these people be totally humorless. It has to be deadpan. Right. And I, I would be curious. I, I haven't read any – you know, I have not read any other Vern. And I, I – but, you know, I've, I've seen 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I've seen Mysterious Island. Um, I would wonder if maybe the sort of interior life of, say, Captain Nemo has more – texture and depth to it than these guys um so i you know i guess this is me saying everyone i'm willing to read more jules verne yeah and (laughs) the you know you know it's it has its flaws but it's it's a quick move you know it moves quickly you know you get it even when you get a totally off tangent digression you know it's like a two-page chapter so (laughs) it's uh you know it's refreshing compared to like a you know a stephen king doorstopper Right, right. <laughs> but, which, uh, but yeah, so which and all of Vern's stuff is, you know, I mean, compared to the way most of your science fiction today is written, you know, by the pound, it, it's right. always, you know, he, he does do short stories, which 
I think plays to his strengths. It, yeah. The, yeah. I think that, you know, the way it's written would not be as enjoyable in a thousand page book. You know, in, exactly. in yeah, a 50 yeah, yeah. page book, it's, you know, it just moves right along. Right, right. I, th- I think you're exactly right. And I think the, and I think maybe even sort of writing so episodically, Vern is playing to his strengths. Right. In that, you know, you can even if you're in the middle of the uh, the you know man's searching quest for knowledge of the moon chapter, you know it's not going to go on that long. And there's also interesting right. tidbits in there. Like I, it is interesting to read about like what this or that classical author conjectured about the moon. Like then you know that's all right. Um, but yeah, you know that it's not going to go on that long, and we're going to move on to something else. You know, pretty soon. But uh, yeah, I, I guess any. Um, I don't know any any concluding thoughts on uh, from Earth to the Moon. I, I I thought this was a very valuable reading experience. Yeah, it's uh, and you know it does not feel like something written in 1865. It uh, yeah, you know you were I, I don't know if you know I, I don't know if I could say exactly when it feels like, but if you told me it was written in you know 1910, it, it's very you know yeah yeah it, uh, right, yeah it yeah uh, you know. It's all you know, trains and guns, and but it 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 feels more modern than a lot of your nineteenth century writing, even yeah. with the uh, you know characteristics that you know mark it as being older. The you know the char- the one dimensional characters, right. uh, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I like I said, I've re- read several of his books a long time ago. And I don't really remember a lot about everything. Uh, I mean, I I know I read this. I read the continuation uh, on to, you know where they go all the way. You know, they go around the moon. I've read <laughs> it, it is something. It's called. It's called like uh, like uh, on you know onward to the moon or something like that. Like yes. oh yeah, we'll actually get to the moon this time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, honestly, this book should have called from Earth at the Moon. Yeah, and I, I think I would have been a little less upset. Right. <laughs> Yeah, but all right, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for for joining me to talk about uh, Jules Verne and from Earth yeah. to the Moon. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing our exploration of uh, of the uh, the science fictional genre universe. We have a few more. I've I've teed up a few more selections from the 19th century for us. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're not out of those. Uh, we're not out of those Victorian woods yet. But uh, it's all very interesting stuff. Some of it new to me. Some of it not. Um, I'm sure it'll be likewise for you, Gigi. But uh, I hope everyone listening at home had a good time. And, um, yeah, I hope you're ready to continue on and join us as we explore the genre history of science fiction uh, through the the works themselves. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Gigi. And we'll uh, see everybody next time. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.